previously on Areas of Agreement. Urban-rural is one of the most prominent fault lines in American politics. Rural areas are wider, older, more religious, less educated. Urban areas are the opposite of all of those things. Our country is pretty polarized, and we have been for quite some time. We're oftentimes not as divided as we think we are if we get into a deeper conversation. As I see it, one of the challenges is that we spend too much time online with people who are similar to us and not enough time in person with people who are different from us. Friends across the political spectrum, you know, they, they want to disengage. Um, and I've always believed that engagement, not disengagement, is the answer. But of course, that's easier said than done. You know, when you say things like, where do you get information that you trust? What, what do you believe the news isn't covering? Or what do you think that they're getting wrong in terms of people that have your viewpoint? Those are really different types of questions. Where do you get information you trust? What isn't the news covering? What communities are underrepresented or misrepresented in coverage? These are some of the questions we'll explore in this episode that's all about local journalism. This is Elia Powers, and if you're listening to this series for the first time or it's been a while, and you're asking yourself, who is this guy? Here's the lowdown. I've been in journalism my entire career, first as a local news reporter and now as a journalism professor who helps run a local newsroom and researches local news. I'm doing this podcast because I'm involved in a program called Uniting for Action America. It's run by Urban Rural Action, the organization I've profiled throughout this series. For the past few months, I've worked closely with a half dozen or so people from across the country. We're all on the media team. And during our time together, we've talked about all the things you just heard about in the opening. Polarization, lack of civic engagement, and distrust in the media. All of these topics, in one way or another, are related to the decline of local journalism. That's been the focus of the media team's project. You'll hear more about that, including excerpts from a town hall event we organized on COVID-19 and community information needs, later in the episode. But first, let's take a trip back in time to the 1990s. Back then, local journalism was flourishing. Print newspapers were generally well-staffed, filled with news and lots of local advertising. Newspapers generally were profitable enterprises. There were plenty of loyal subscribers like the Matthews family from Pekin, Illinois, a town of about 30,000 in the central part of the state. Nick Matthews grew up reading the local paper. Seeing his name in print was a big deal. I remember playing in a chess tournament when I was a kid and having my picture and a little story about me in the Pekin Daily Times. Soon, he'd be getting bylines in that newspaper. As a high school student, Nick talked his way into covering all sorts of events. You know, I think the day I turned 16, I covered a baseball game, the Peoria Chiefs. And the day after, I covered a city council meeting in the little town of Manitou, Illinois. And, you know, later on, I, I started editing content and designing pages for them in the summers when I wasn't in school. And it was a, a very lucky and tremendous experience. Nick went on to have a long career in local journalism. He was a copy editor, writer, and sports editor in towns like Decatur, Illinois, Fremont, Ohio, Athens, Georgia, and Newport News, Virginia. His time in Newport News coincided with the Great Recession, 
which hit local newspapers across the country hard. The industry had already been in turmoil by that point. The move to digital meant losses in advertising revenue. Print subscriptions also were on the decline as people realized they could get their news online for free. The financial collapse compounded these problems, and newspapers across the country saw their budgets slashed. Nick was a sports editor in Newport News, and he had to administer four rounds of layoffs in four years. It was a difficult time, but Nick stayed the course. He became sports editor of the Houston Chronicle, and later a regional editor-in-chief of daily and weekly newspapers in Central Virginia. Nick spent much of his career at community newspapers because he believes deeply in their mission. I mean, the best way to tell the story of the community is through the people in the community. And, you know, the smaller newspapers, I still think, do a better job of that, of actually connecting to their audience than, you know, the Houston Chronicles of the world, just because that's, they're, they serve a different function. The Houston Chronicles of the world, the large metropolitan daily newspapers, are mostly still around but they're often not as well-staffed or comprehensive as they once were. Smaller community newspapers are in even worse shape. The situation is so dire that two of my favorite comedy news hosts use their show's main block to sound the alarm. The newspaper industry today is in big trouble. Papers have been closing and downsizing for years, and that affects all of us. Local newspapers are an essential service that could completely disappear. That's why we have to talk about who is killing your local newspaper. It's not just John Oliver and Hassan Minaj who are taking notice. Broadcast news programs are as well. Local news in many communities is either withering or dying out altogether. All of this has led to the growth of so-called news desert. What exactly is a news desert? Nick typically defines it as a county without a daily or weekly newspaper. Seems clear enough. But he also acknowledges there's a broader definition, like the one used by Penelope Muse Abernathy, who goes by Penny. She's a visiting professor at Northwestern University and the Knight Chair Emerita in Journalism and Digital Media Economics at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Penny is the foremost authority on news deserts in the U.S. And here's her definition. A news desert is a community where residents have difficulty getting access to the type of credible and comprehensive information that they need in order to make wise decisions about quality of life issues. You may have noticed that Penny's definition doesn't specifically reference newspapers, though it once did. She used to consider a news desert a community without a newspaper. That made sense, given research showing that strong local newspapers were often the prime or sole source of news and information, especially in small and mid-sized communities. Those strong newspapers could also set the agenda for the debate of issues that were going to affect the quality of our lives as well as the quality of future generations that lived in that community. Agenda-setting local newspapers still exist in some places, but they're far less common than they used to be. One reason why is that newspaper owners don't invest in their own product like they used to. For a long time, community newspapers were family-owned. Those families typically lived in town, and they had a vested interest in seeing strong local coverage. But eventually, newspaper chains like the publicly traded Gannett, Knight Ritter, and Tribune Company bought up papers across the country. They centralized operations, and in quite a few cases, cut back on reporting. Within the last decade or so, 
there's been an even more troubling ownership trend. An historic move tonight in the newspaper industry, an industry with roots in Rochester. Today, Pittsburgh-based Gatehouse Media announced it's merging with Gannett, the company that owns the Democrat and Chronicle. New tonight, the owners of the Chicago Tribune have signed off on a $630 million buyout. Tribune Publishing has agreed to sell to a New York-based hedge fund called Alden Global Capital, a company known for oppressive cost-cutting and eliminating newsroom jobs. Private equity funds, hedge funds, and investment groups without any interest in the civic mission of local journalism have bought up newspapers and managed them. These owners operate with a short-term, earnings-first approach, and that usually means aggressive cost-cutting that results in layoffs, consolidations, and in some cases, closing newspapers that aren't profitable. Just how widespread is this trend? A number of years ago, Penny set out to answer that question. She started the News Desert Project at UNC and authored a series of influential reports. The first, in 2016, focused largely on newspaper ownership. Penny wanted to track how powerful these new media barons had become. Lo and behold, we looked and these new chains were accumulating two and three hundred newspapers. And most of them were in small towns and mid-sized communities. So what you were doing was taking the independent structure that these communities had depended on and kind of rolling them up into these large national chains. Two years later, Penny and her team followed up with a report that quantified how many newspapers had gone out of business in the last 15 years or so. And what we discovered at that point is that we had lost 1,800 papers that we had in 2004, and 1,800 papers was a fifth of all the newspapers we had had. So that's alarming. Between 2018 and 2020, things got even worse. 300 more newspapers closed, 6,000 newspaper journalists lost their jobs, and print circulation declined by 5 million. The 2020 report found that over the past 15 years, about half of local journalists had lost their jobs. More than one-fourth of the country's newspapers disappeared. That's 2,100 in total, leaving at least 1,800 communities that had a local news outlet in the mid-2000s without one today. Or, put another way, more than 200 of the nation's 3,000-plus counties and equivalents are news deserts. Penny's definition of news deserts has evolved with changes in the industry. About two-thirds of U.S. counties don't have a daily newspaper. Still, there are other types of local news sources that can fill some of the void. Public and commercial broadcasting stations have been around for a while, but they generally don't report much outside of their metro area. Digital news websites, many of them are independent and nonprofit, have launched across the country. These newsrooms are generally pretty small, and they're mostly located in urban areas. And as Penny's report says, these efforts have failed to thwart the rise of news deserts. One example, while 80 local online news sites were established in 2019, about as many went dark. So when we talk about news deserts, we're still mostly talking about whether or not a community has a newspaper. Newspapers haven't always served their communities as well as they could have. Many didn't or don't listen to their audiences very well. They don't reflect the diversity of their communities or cover marginalized groups well at all. But for all their faults, newspapers still do a lot of important work. Local papers only make up 25% of the country's media outlets, but they produce almost half. 
of all original reporting. So believe it or not, you are getting local news reporting in your Facebook feed, in podcasts, and especially cable news. That again is Hassan Minaj of the Netflix show Patriot Act, explaining how central newspapers still are in the news ecosystem and how trusted they still are by news audiences. 73% of Americans say that they trust their local paper, while only 55% say that they trust national TV news. So local newspapers are still a valuable public good, and communities feel the loss when they're gone. When you lose a newspaper and to have nothing to replace it, like a digital site or a television station moving in and taking over that coverage, when you lose a newspaper, what you're really doing is losing the person that shows up to cover the local town council meeting. When there's less coverage of local government, there's less accountability. And that can lead to more waste and also more corruption. But more than that, you're losing an important mechanism for just informing people about what they need to be concerned about, what are major policies that are being made and why it's important to their everyday life. Research shows when there's not reliable and consistent local news, polarization increases. There's less ticket splitting among voters and civic engagement declines. All of this is a reason to be alarmed by the increase in news deserts. And news deserts aren't the only cause for concern. Half of all U.S. counties have only one newspaper. Penny realized that there needed to be a way to account for publications that still exist, but are a far cry from what they once were. So we kind of developed a new term called ghost newspapers, and those were newspapers in name only. They had contracted so significantly that journalists who normally covered even county commissioner meetings or routine government meetings, they were so stretched, they were no longer able to get there. Nick says he'd classify his hometown, Pekin Daily Times, as a ghost newspaper. His parents, who were once devoted readers, stopped subscribing. It was really heartbreaking to hear when they told me that, to be honest. They just didn't find it to be valuable anymore. So between communities without any local newspapers and communities with ghost newspapers, there's just a lot less local journalism. It's clear that the problem exists across the country. And here's something that stood out to me in my conversation with Penny. People who live in these emerging news deserts tend to be poorer, older, and less educated than the average American. Most of the newspapers that have shuttered are non-daily newspapers that serve small and mid-sized communities. Many of them are in exurban and rural areas. Rural residents have been dealt a double blow. They may have lost their local newspaper, or it may be a ghost newspaper. That's the first blow. The second is that regional newspapers that used to regularly cover rural areas have fewer reporters on the ground there now. As media writ large has struggled a bit, the kind of rural beat and the rural coverage is often one of the first that gets hit. That's Adam Georgie. He's the director of digital strategy for the Center for Rural Strategies. It's an organization that seeks to improve economic and social conditions in rural communities through media and communications. When owners of newspaper brands um, started to feel the squeeze of losing advertising revenue, the first coverage that tends to get hurt is rural coverage. So think about a suburban paper or a metropolitan paper that is striving to cover a region or a state. As they start to have to tighten their belt, oftentimes they'll pull in closer to the core community. That means not only less daily coverage, but also less watchdog reporting. You don't have the big metro papers 
that did the seminal investigative pieces that bound people together as a region and as a state and also highlighted problems in these rural areas that led to policies that changed the course of history. And so when we think about local news deserts, I think what you find is that you lose the ability for coverage that is both for and about. There's long been lots of coverage about rural America, but if it's serving an affluent metropolitan audience, if it's from the outside looking in, that's where you get parachute journalism, that's where you get tropes and stereotypes, that trust in media often sags because of a perception that it's very coastal, very metropolitan, very elite. The Center for Rural Strategies, where Adam works, is the publisher of The Daily Yonder. It's a national publication that aims to report for and about rural America. The Daily Yonder has a lot of coverage that gives voice to people in smaller communities. But as Adam acknowledges, it's not a replacement for local reporting that helps to connect neighbors. When that local connective tissue is lost, that sense of identity is instead going to come through cable television, your Facebook feed. You spend a lot of time on message boards or on Reddit connecting with people who aren't from your local community but have shared interests. And that can be a positive thing, but I think it's also often misused and manipulated and it leads to a lot of the problems we have where people get pulled into online communities that can peddle misinformation or agenda-driven media on cable television that really has a financial interest in sowing distrust in government. And then you have the situation that we're in now where people think about fake news, enemy of the people. It's much easier to trust the media when you've got local reporters in your community that you see at the grocery store. When media is just the people that you see on the TV, it's just harder to build those bonds of trust. All of what Adam just described, Penny echoed in our conversation as well. She told me a story about how all of this played out in the rural county where she lives. A town council member came up to her and asked, how do I correct a story on Facebook? And it turned out there had been no reporter at a routine government meeting. And she got into a disagreement with the mayor and the only account was his account that he posted on his Facebook page. Well, that says that in these rural counties, you are relying on the Facebook to give you the information. If you look at that lack of a credible and comprehensive news source available to people in rural areas, that also explains how misinformation and disinformation spreads so rapidly and virally (laughs) on social media. Coming up next, a close look at what happened when a largely rural county in Virginia became a news desert and how that's affected the ability to get credible information about COVID-19. We will reconvene the um, February 23rd Board of Supervisors meeting. Today is a Caroline County Board of Supervisors budget work session. This Board of Supervisors meeting is the kind of government proceeding that a local newspaper reporter would almost certainly have covered in the past. It's where decisions get made about things like utilities and zoning and school funding, things that directly affect people's lives. But in Caroline County, where this meeting took place, there's no longer a local newspaper. 
it's one of six counties in Virginia that's classified as a news desert by the News Desert Project. So to learn about what happens at government meetings like this, you may have to watch a video posted by a government agency. Some people I spoke with call Caroline County a partial news desert. The freelance Star newspaper in nearby Fredericksburg covers Caroline but has had to scale back. The Washington Post and regional broadcast stations also do occasional stories. But without a local newspaper, the sheer volume of coverage of Caroline County has dropped a lot. And that's notable because the county is not that far south of Washington, D.C., a major media market. And it's north of Richmond, Virginia. If you drive between these two cities on I-95, you pass right through Caroline County. It's one of the only rural stretches left on the interstate in this part of the Mid-Atlantic. Caroline County is pretty big, more than 525 square miles. And it's pretty sparsely populated, about 31,000 people. Most people who live there commute outside the county for work. Nick Matthews started paying close attention to Caroline County a few years ago. Nick's no longer in journalism. He's now a second-year PhD student at the University of Minnesota's Hubbard School of Journalism and Mass Communication. Nick was looking to research how a community responds when it loses its local newspaper. The community he chose was Caroline County. The weekly newspaper there, the Caroline Progress, closed in 2018. The paper had been around for 99 years. The announcement of its closure was less than 300 words. In my eyes, it felt very cold. There was no, you know, celebrating the successes of the newspaper or celebrating the connection with the audience or anything like that. It was very transactional. The business is shutting down. We can't make this work. Boom. That struck me as, as something I wanted to understand more. When Nick started looking into the newspaper's backstory, he saw a familiar pattern. For a long time, it was family owned and operated, but it was taken over in 2007 by Tennessee-based Lakeway Publishers. That company bought up a handful of other papers in Virginia, and those papers, according to a story in the Columbia Journalism Review, were slowly gutted over the next decade. Toward the end, the Caroline Progress had just one editor and a part-time reporter covering the county. 20 or 30 years ago, it was a wonderful paper that everyone loved. That's Tony Aris, a Caroline County resident who took part in Nick's study. But then slowly but surely, as it changed ownership, the quality of the paper kind of went down, down, down. It had become a ghost newspaper. At the very end, the Caroline Progress didn't even have an office in the county it covered. The newsroom had been moved to nearby Hanover County. Nick interviewed 19 Caroline Progress subscribers, and many of them couldn't get past the fact that the newspaper, in its final years, no longer had a physical presence in their community. The Caroline Progress and its sister newspaper that covered Hanover County closed at the same time. Nick's journal article, Life in a News Desert, The Perceived Impact of a Newspaper Closure on Community Members, focused exclusively on the Caroline Progress. Nick found that people missed their local newspaper a lot. Not the diminished version of it, but the more robust paper they remember from an earlier era. Because they weren't in the newspaper, and because nobody really cared about them, the regional TV networks didn't care about them, the regional radio networks didn't care about them, you know, they were not in the media. They felt like they didn't matter. And Nick says he was surprised what people missed most about the paper. It wasn't the watchdog stuff. It wasn't civic involvement. It was what to do. They missed the news about their lives. The thing that they cited the most was a half page, agate sized, tiny tight calendar of events. 
Events like a harvest festival, a high school sports game, or a fish fry. In a rural area, they're not close to their neighbors. So, you know, they sometimes need a reason or be told a reason to go spend time with their, their fellow residents. And the Caroline Progress provided that. Without the paper, people felt more isolated. They gathered less frequently. They said the Caroline Progress had helped them feel a sense of pride in their community. Outside media generally only came in to cover a story when something bad happened. The Caroline Progress celebrated the community's successes. And another thing is that without the weekly newspaper in town, people had to be reporters themselves. You know, they had to go to the different websites for the government agencies. There was a lot of work that went into being a resident in Caroline County without the Caroline Progress. As one participant told Nick, life had become harder without the newspaper. For a short period of time after the Caroline Progress stopped publishing, there was another local news option. Tony, who you heard from earlier, started his own publication with his wife. He named the publication the Virginia Connection. We were hoping to be the connection, the thing that brought the county together, you know, to, to help people see, hey, regardless what, even if you don't talk to one another or run into each other that often, you share an economic bond. We share in the same public school system. So why don't we know what's going on in the other parts of the county? Tony admits that for a long time, he was part of the problem. I was not involved in my county, and I was not aware of what was going on. And basically, there is an apathetic attitude that I was guilty of, that as long as my taxes aren't going sky high, and as long as I don't hear about any incredible injustice in my neighborhood, then I'm not paying attention. The 2016 election was his wake-up call. It prompted him to pay a lot more attention to news. And two years later, he was covering it. Tony isn't trained as a journalist, he's a pastor and an entrepreneur. But starting in 2018, he was doing the work of a reporter and editor, covering events, going to public meetings, chasing down crime stories. He started with a website and a Facebook page where he mostly posted videos. But people wanted to print newspaper again. So every week, he'd print about 1,500 to 2,000 copies and drive all over the county to distribute the paper. But the Virginia Connection only lasted a little over a year. Not many people subscribed. Ad sales were sluggish. Tony says a lot of people wanted partisan news, and he didn't want to provide that. And of course, there's the apathy problem Tony talked about before. When he explained to me some of the reasons why people in the county tend to be disengaged, it was a real insight into the challenges that local news outlets face. They have an expression here, are you from here or you come here? A lot of the from here's are on the eastern side of the county and they're locked in civically. The from here's often skew older. They pay attention to news. People on the other side of the county are the come here's. They often travel to D.C. or to Richmond for work. They don't necessarily feel a strong connection to where they live. They stay in the county, but they're not really locked in and engaged in local news. They barely know who their supervisor is. They barely know who their school board person is. You know, they don't go to the parades. Quite a few people in Caroline County are locked into one of the few remaining information sources. Private Facebook groups. People share first-person accounts from meetings they go to and people they speak to. They share links and videos. And as with many Facebook groups, there's a lot of rumors and hearsay people post all kinds of stuff and there's no, you know, like if you get it wrong and you're not being paid for it, then there's no accountability. The people that Nick interviewed for his study shared that view. They did not trust the Facebook content as much as the weekly newspaper content. 
anybody can post anything they wanted on these groups. And when there's a major news story like COVID-19, having to rely on a Facebook group to stay informed is dangerous. It's times like these when having reliable local news and information is really essential. Over the past year or so, community leaders in this news desert have gotten creative to get important information to people in the county. How did they do it? More on that coming up. So here's uh, one page that we have with all of the vaccine information that we know of so far. That's Elliot Robinson, news editor of Charlottesville Tomorrow, a hyper-local, non-profit news outlet in Virginia. Elliot's giving a tour of the outlet's website, which has tons of news and information about COVID-19. There's a regularly updated list of what pharmacies are offering vaccines. There's a page that explains who can get the vaccine when. We have an additional page where we keep all of the COVID data that we know of so far. That includes a daily update of new COVID cases, total cases, positivity rate, hospitalizations, and deaths in the Blue Ridge Health District. There's a state level, county level, and city level breakdown of data. And because it's a college town, there's COVID data from the University of Virginia. We have lists of uh, resources of, of course, how they get help, ways to contact us if you have any other additional information. All of this is on top of in-depth reporting and analysis, literally hundreds of stories over the past year about COVID-19. Charlottesville Tomorrow has gotten national recognition for its COVID-19 coverage. And it's not even the only news outlet in this town of 47,000 people. There's also a daily newspaper. Whatever the opposite of a news desert is, Charlottesville is that. It's a stark contrast to Caroline County, which is less than 100 miles away. Elliot joined a virtual town hall I helped plan on COVID-19 and the information needs of local communities. I also invited several others you've heard from throughout this episode. Tony, Nick, and Adam. A few others from the government and healthcare sectors joined as well. The town hall took place in late February, and it focused on Caroline County and the surrounding areas. The event was planned by the Uniting for Action America media team. Here's our squad. I'm Steve Carmody. I am a retired engineer and I live in Chicago. I'm Daniel Wolk. I'm on the far north side of Chicago. Nowadays, I'm an independent scholar, freelance journalist. Erica Maldonado Singh here. I'm an assistant director at the Center for the Political Future at the University of Southern California. Pooja D. Giovanna, I'm the assistant director at the Davenport Institute for Public Engagement at Pepperdine University. I'm Miriam Ramez. I work with the News Literacy Project, senior manager of education and training. The first thing we wanted to know is what news and information about COVID-19 is most vital. Given the timing of the event, you can probably guess what participants in the town hall said first. Vaccines, vaccines, vaccines. Where to get them. Who qualifies. How to get on the right list. Whether there's a racial disparity in who's getting vaccinated. People also wanted accurate data on COVID-19 numbers and rates in their community. Local hospital bed availability and the mortality rate. In short, they wanted the kind of information that Charlottesville Tomorrow presents so clearly. But where do you get that information in a place like Caroline County that doesn't have a local news outlet to collect and curate data? What I learned from the town hall is that local institutions in Caroline County are doing what they can to fill the void. There are a lot of digital strategies to reach people. 
The most basic, of course, is publishing health data and information on county government and hospital websites. But let's face it, most people are not in the habit of regularly visiting those pages for news. That's where push notifications come in. There's a Caroline alert system, usually used for emergencies, that's being used for COVID-19 announcements. So you can send out a mass text or a mass email with folks, and it comes from the county government, which is theoretically a trusted source. That's Floyd Thomas, a member of the Caroline County Board of Supervisors, the governing authority for the county. The Board of Supervisors posts videos of their meetings on YouTube. But as my team member Daniel asked during the event, How do you get the word out about that? How do you actually start getting people to watch these things? Tony had an answer. Break the video into short, digestible chunks, issue by issue. The average Joe will watch that. They're not going to watch two and a half hours. But that kind of editing takes time and personnel. Floyd said they're working on that. Another big local institution, Mary Washington Healthcare, has been doing town halls in the evenings on their Facebook page. The CEO, chief nursing officer, and chief medical officer share the latest COVID information and they take live questions. The idea behind these town halls is to kind of cut out the middleman. That's Marianne Batchy, community outreach coordinator for Mary Washington Healthcare. In a very unfortunate way, but in a strange way, the health system has gained in position of credibility and responsibility, I think, to the community at large. And speaking of responsibility, a lot falls on Allison Balmas-John. She's the public information officer for the health district that includes Caroline County. She does talk to a few reporters regularly and gets information to the public that way. But again, those messages only go so far these days. So she's had to try other things. Like we've experimented with using Nextdoor. That's an app for neighborhoods where you can get and share local tips. But there are limitations with that platform. We can't even post anything that will allow comments because it instantly turns to this infighting and we just can't deal with it. Speaking of infighting, our conversation turned to the platform where that's oh so common. Here's my media team member, Stephen. I'm just curious as to how everybody feels about getting information from Facebook. Here again is Floyd, the Board of Supervisors member. There is value in Facebook. The page that Tony referenced is 95% opinion, and it's politically slanted opinion at that. So there are a great deal of people based on their political party who post on that page who still think the virus is a hoax. People will share, you know, their one bad experience and that gets so extrapolated based on the greater political conversation that we really start to see things blow up. You know, we maybe will hear about it, but there's not really a ton that we can do if we can't get into that neighborhood group, nor do we necessarily have the time to track all that down. Controlling the message and correcting misinformation is a lot easier when it's on the health department's social media account. Here again is my teammate, Daniel. Uh, I know there have been a lot of stories nationally about people who have long-term effects of COVID, people who had the disease, mild cases, and now are very ill for months and months. How do you cover that? I have found that to be a really interesting thing about social media is people post in my opinion, a shocking amount of medical information on Facebook. And we had a lot of people who would share videos and disclose their case status. And we still see it a lot with vaccines where people will comment on our stuff and say, this is my age. These are all the medical conditions I have. This is why I should get a vaccine now. I remember when the first case occurred in Caroline County. I think Caroline was the last locality within its health district to have a case. 
That's Taft Coghill, a Caroline County resident who writes for the Freelance Star newspaper. That was big news all over Facebook, and I remember texting Kathy that Caroline County has its first case. Kathy is Taft's colleague at the Freelance Star, who covers COVID-19. She was able to uh, track her down and, and to do a story on what that experience was like. So as you just heard, people provide first-person testimonials on Facebook. They share news and information, sometimes misinformation. Government and health officials are all over social media. They're hosting live events. They're sending push alerts. All of which is effective to an extent. But in rural places like Caroline County, these digital strategies won't reach a lot of people, as Floyd pointed out. It appears that 50% of our population is over 65. Combine that with 25% of our county has broadband access, we have a great deal of trouble getting those older folks with no internet access, you know, online. Lack of access to broadband in rural areas is such a big problem nationally that researchers like Nick often refer to news and broadband deserts. Because even if there's digital news in the community, without access to the internet, it doesn't really do much good. Floyd created a county broadband committee and is working on ways to improve broadband access. But for now, there are still plenty of people who don't have reliable access to it. What does that mean for Allison and state health officials? We often have to get really creative with how we're going to reach people without broadband, using things like peg channels, printing it on utility bills, just finding ways that you're going to reach people who don't have internet. Just to make sure you heard that right, Allison said they've experimented with printing COVID information on utility bills. Talk about thinking outside the box. And that's not the only example. The state health department has worked with libraries, and it's had volunteers go to markets to put up flyers about testing and vaccine availability. Several town hall participants said they've also tried another avenue. We could send a note to a church or several churches, and that was as good as any community newspaper. But with the pandemic, they're not having live services, so it makes that a lot harder. At the end of the town hall, I asked everyone about solutions. What could be done to better inform people in their communities? Tony said he'd love to see a nonprofit program that deploys journalists to news deserts. In essence, he described an existing program called Report for America, except for one big difference. That program typically places journalists in communities where news organizations still exist. Adam from the Center for Rural Strategies said he's intrigued by the possibility of civically oriented, publicly run social media platforms. And then there's the ambitious goal of teaching people to be critical media consumers. That's the aim of the News Literacy Project, the organization that Miriam works for. We have like a quiz about getting smart about COVID-19, and we have like a couple of easy, shareable tidbits of information to help people understand that. A few weeks after the town hall event, the media team met for the last time. And one thing that stuck with us is how much the participants we invited were doing with limited resources. Local institutions are doing their best under less than ideal circumstances to keep people in Caroline County informed. But as one of the participants in Nick's study said, everything is harder without a strong local newspaper to help. Coming up on the next episode, the Urban Rural Action Economy Team joins forces with an organization that's helping rural community colleges chart their future. Thanks for listening.